Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. I know I said we were going to take this week off, but, well, surprise! At the very last minute, I got the chance to grab John Patrick Shanley, the Oscar-winning screenwriter of Moonstruck, and the writer-director of Joe vs. the Volcano, which Sam Bain brought to this podcast just two weeks ago. His new film, Wild Mountain Time, stars Emily Blunt and Jamie Dornan as neighboring Irish farmers who spend their days not quite connecting, despite their obvious feelings for one another. It's available on VOD right now. John wanted to talk about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Celine Siama's rapturous study of women in love in a hostile environment. The women are Marianne and Helwaz, played by Naomi Merlin and Adele Hanel. The environment is an island near Brittany in the late 1700s, and their love is a thing that blossoms because they fully see one another. Marianne has been hired to paint Elwa's portrait in secret by Elwa's imperious future mother-in-law as both a wedding gift and a reminder of the young woman's place in rigid European society. But the more time they spend together, the more they connect, and the more tempestuous and richer their lives become as a result. You've seen this, right? It's a masterpiece. This is someone else's movie. You know, I watched the film. Actually, I have, you know, one of those enormous television sets. Uh, and uh, uh, I got uh, a, a Blu-ray of it. And so I watched it at home. Uh, and uh, it was cinematography, jaw-droppingly good. Just stunning-looking film from the first frame. And I like the austerity of the silence around the characters that the director did not choose to uh, heavily score the film. But in fact, only much later in the story, when it organically sort of erupts from the story, does this, uh, to me, uh, completely instinctually correct music enter the story uh, in the persons of these women around a fire who start singing and chanting. Uh, but it's all the more powerful because there had been nothing like it before that. Uh, and then, but there was something else going on uh, that has never happened to me before, and I doubt it will happen to me again. And that was that as the film progressed, I started to have this eerie feeling uh, as the, you started to see the paintings. Uh, I started looking from the monitor to the walls of my apartment because Helena Del Mer, who's the painter that was employed both as the on-camera hand that's painting and whose paintings were used, I have about nine of her paintings in my apartment. Huh. Uh, and she was not well known. Uh, and I had seen uh, one of her paintings on the internet uh, and was struck by it enough where I found a way to reach out to her and ask her if I might purchase it. And she said, no, actually, I'm about to have a show in Paris, and I need that as well as other paintings that I'm doing. So I have nothing for sale right now. Perfectly French response, you know, <laughs> just. And so I contacted a friend of mine who was a broker, uh, and he, he was able to, uh, to be an intermediary. And I bought, I think, about nine of her paintings, which are all over my apartment. And so I'm watching this film 
and the paintings in the film and the paintings on my wall start talking to each other. And I'm having this 3D experience where the movie is spilling out of the rectangle and becoming something that surrounds me. And I've just never had the experience before. It's wonderful. Uh, so, yeah, so it was, that was spectacularly strange uh, thing to have happen. Uh, and then the screenplay of the film uh, was a, a, a very simple premise, beautifully done, uh, uh, that uh, echoed, it was about this idea of painting, this theme of painting, and of how do you understand another person by looking, by looking. Uh, and uh, that's certainly, you know, something that I've done a lot of, and I think that, that most people in some way have. Uh, but it spoke to me. And I found it to be just a thrilling work of cinema. I can't say that I had a similar experience with it. Um, that's that's remarkable. And I'm just realizing there's exactly one poster here in my studio, and it, it's, <laughs> it's nowhere near the screen, so they can't argue with each other. That's just my own visual focus, I think. But the... Um, the sense of living in a space or, or having the space reach out to, to commune with you, I guess, for lack of a better term, is something that I've experienced in theaters a number of times where you just suddenly realize everybody's breathing the movie. Everybody's sort of feeling that happening to them yeah. as it goes. And the thing that hooked me with Portrait of a Lady on Fire was slowly realizing that she was switching back and forth between handheld and, and lockdown cameras to... How can I put this? I used to be thrown by handheld work in a period piece because it just felt mm -hmm. it felt wrong somehow, and that's just my own expectations. Uh, I saw a Romanian film once that was shot digitally in the relatively early days of digital cinema, and it was set in the fifties, and people were running around with handheld cameras to to shoot this movie, and it just felt obscene somehow. Um, I understand that, but but here the the choices work for the immediacy and the urgency and the the hostility i mean it feels there are, there are shots in the first hour where it feels like putting the camera down would be dangerous where where you know the waves would take it or the wind would knock it over and that just psychologically puts you in this space of agitation and and we have seen how difficult everything is for these two people even before they acknowledge each other as as partners as potential intimates not even just in terms of lovers but just as friends it's like the, the 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 barriers to everything that happens seem to be communicated through Siama's choices of cinematography and and I'm going to butcher her name I fear but Claire Maton's work is just so raw and immediate and polished and beautiful just as the knee as the moment demands and somehow all at once and that alone sort of grabbed me by the face and pulled me into the movie. But mm. I can only imagine what it would be like to watch the film and see its, see its vision, its literal vision reflected around you. Yeah, well, and also, you know, that uh, the parts where there is like two people seated speaking to each other and nobody moves yeah. for a protracted period of time. And, to, and then first I'm going like, why is she doing this? And then I'm like, it's a painting. It's a painting. You're like watching a painting talk. And once I started to see it that way, it was very compelling, very beautiful. 
Yeah. And it also underscores the emotions, right? Because if no one's moving, then all you can do is look at them more closely and you see the tensions and you see muscles straining and people so close to each other and not moving to touch each other. And then it's, it's as though the film is about to explode over and over and over again. And when it finally does, it's just, it's thrilling. It's, I keep saying exhilarating in regards to this movie. And I, it was a hard sell to people before it opened, before people could really get a sense of what it was. It's just, well, it's a love story, but it's also about the female gaze. It's about being seen by a female gaze. It's about, um, it's about understanding, right? I mean, and, and uh, Siyama has been making these movies all along that are about gender roles and fluidity and, and agency and sexism and privilege, but setting it in the, what, the 17th century is mm-hmm. such a 16th, late 16th, 18th, 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 1784. Uh, thank you. I'm terrible with that. That's I'm not that good my biggest flaw, but by making this a film set in a time where the options, it's not that they were limited. They didn't exist for women to have this sort of um, agency and direction. And that there's, there's one man in the film. We see him at the very beginning and he is pretty much useless he he leaves her, he strands her in this world. Yeah, yeah. And then it's just their world. And without uh without the male gaze anywhere, without any judgment from uh exterior sources, they can find each other. And it's just how do you convey that in a two and a half minute trailer? How do you explain to people that that's what this is about? I'm fortunate that I, I never saw the trailer. So yeah, I, I didn't have to face face that. Although I think if I saw it too Two minutes of that cinematography, I would have wanted to see the film. I could. It's it is so luminous uh, throughout, and I also felt that the film was very much in a conversation with the piano. Uh, that oh, yeah. that is invoked multiple times uh, during the film, maybe most especially in the in the scene with the piano uh, unveiled that. You know, they put their hands underneath the covering cloth, uh, and, and that becomes a quietly, incredibly erotic moment. Uh, maybe you know, echoing a bit the Harvey Keitel uh, 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 moment in in the piano, but also when she jumps in at the beginning after when the, the canvas has fallen in the water, it's it just I, and her sta- just standing looking at the ocean and that period. Uh, it kept it kept bringing it up, and I sort of felt it was in one way the camera, the the pardon me, the director saying, "What would happen if you made the piano without a man? <laughs> uh, yeah, how would it change this? It would be more to my liking. Uh, it, you know that in fact he may have been a, a discordant element from something that might have gently gone deeper had he not been present." I hadn't even considered that interpretation, but that's a, yeah, there, there are, there's been so much um, of a, of a, of a fad, I guess it's not a fad, but it, we're, we're currently in this time where the gender flip is the most important thing you can do to a property. If you, since everybody's remaking everything, we might as well reorganize the perspectives and see how that plays, but removing elements, especially from something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder how Campion would play if she, had the opportunity to to revisit that material, that specific film. Um, it's mm-hmm. come up on the podcast that we did an episode on it. And I remember 
revisiting it and realizing that there's just so much, it's not that there's so much more going on now in, in, you know, in the, in 2019, whenever it was, we did it. It was that when I saw it in 1993, I was just like 25 and I was in no place to understand everything that was going on. I just, I miss so much and I'm twice that age now. And I, I got to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire as a, as a, you know, a fully formed person, I suppose, with somebody who, who can just read the the love and the emotion and the, and the, and the desire. And it's, it's all just so clear. The lines that Siama draws are so clear. And it's not to say that the piano is murky. I'm, I'm, I don't want to dismiss that film at all, but to watch this movie now and, and, uh, after a decade of, of seeing Suyama's other films and, and kind of getting to appreciate what it is that she does, this seemed like a really odd choice for her. And yet it feels like the culmination of everything she's been working towards. It's just... And, you know, uh, and, you know look at the title. The Portrait of a Lady is a previously existing work that Jane Campion adapted. Yep. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, in that one, the discordant element, again, John Malkovich um, sort of tips over the tea service and uh, it becomes a different kind of story. Uh, and again, what, what would happen if you subtracted John Malkovich and added a woman? Yeah. I mean, here we have Valeria Galino as the authority and sort of embodying male force because she is doing the things that tradition dictates and she she's operating from a very patriarchal position even though she's ostensibly the matriarch um and there is this sense in her performance too of someone who has deliberately refused to pursue her heart who's who has seen these opportunities and rejected them and what astonished me is the way that it just doesn't matter that she's just she just drifts away from the center of the story because their relationship is just more important. There's, there's nothing she can do. She can interfere, but she's a nuisance to the movie. The narrative of the film is just not interested in her, which I found really almost tragic on second viewing. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And, you know, given that most, um, most people in North America only really know her from that Pee Wee Herman movie, it's, it's just, <laughs> that, you know, she still has this great career. She's just been working elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. She's really kind of a living painting in the film. Yeah. Galena, I mean, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, the two things of painting as a way of trapping somebody and painting as a way of freeing somebody. And I feel like Galena's character is trapped by the painting that she's in. Mm. And that she's built that world for herself. Like those are the results of her decisions. Is, That's has, the accommodation has, that she's made. Yeah. And it gives some level of uh, dignity, I suppose, to, to the women of that era who had no choice, who, who she represents, that they weren't rendered ugly or cruel, but for their own choices, that the, the things that they do could be perceived as ugly, but she can justify whatever she's doing because that's the world she exists in. 
Well, she was trapped in a painting, and now she's arranging for her daughter to be trapped in a painting. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. Is, she's been yeah, fixed that, in that space ever since. Somebody else's conception, not her own conception. Yeah, and she's played, uh, not played into it. She has been bound by that ever since. Yeah. And the painting that results from Marianne being hired to see was for the first time properly as no one else has ever regarded her is perfect and frustratingly imperfect because it keeps changing because the more she understands of her the different the more different it becomes and the more uh unsuited to simple portraiture this woman is because there's so much there that can't be contained in two dimensions except that she does because she's that good an artist and Watching that push and pull and watching the two of them figure each other out, there's a there's a still frame that popped up, I think it was in um, the Canadian press kit, of uh, of the shot with the lighter of the two of them. And it's, it's how it was just glancing sideways at Marianne. And there's this little half smile on her face. And it looks like she's about to speak. It's just this, this image, this still that shouldn't work. But I love it so much because it captures everything about their relationship, these little fascinations and each of them trying to perform for the other before they really understand they don't have to. And then once they get together, they perform in a different way because they're just mm-hmm. comfortable and they can be themselves and, and all of these things swirling around. I, I always wonder what it's like to crack the screenplay when someone is trying to figure out how to tell this story, what the moment is where they realize they can do it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, actually, I was just looking at your gesture where you were doing, you kept doing this. Yeah. And I was, and I was thinking, you know, there's these two women and they're doing this affecting each other. And then the director and camera woman, there's two women behind the camera and in front of the camera. We don't see that that often. Uh, And they're, they're doing that too. Uh, And that sort of completes the quaternity. I think of how they got to something that was so resonant. It's just their vision on, uninterfered with right it's the collaboration comes right through it's i believe it and the sense of power that that connotes that that you can actually do this now that the 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 industry exists where this film can exist i it is you know we're two white guys talking about this movie uh older older white men it it always feels i mean we are but but at the same time it like it feels like there's an extra space that we should be setting for the creation for the creators for the art and it's a conversation that always happens with with cinema with with literature because the voice uh, i mean well how can i put it if we're talking, if if somebody brings a, a movie to this podcast, it's generally because they responded to it and it moved them so profoundly that they really want to talk. I mean, my my standard line is always just pick something you're willing to talk about for an hour because that's what we'll do. And inevitably, it's something that people respond to so vividly that that it has its own form. That it that you want to invite the movie to to talk about itself as well or somehow participate. the 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 communication of the art is the thing that. I just find so fascinating that we're neither of us made it. And yet we both feel like we know it and can talk about it and unpack it. And it still will be there just as the piano was for me 25 years later. It's just, it's going to wait me out. The movie itself won't change. Yeah. You know, I was talking to uh, one of the producers on the film that I just released, Wild Mountain Ton. And, uh, 
she was expressing some concern about something. And I said, the film is safe from us now. It doesn't matter what we say anymore. It doesn't matter what we do anymore. The film is safe. Yeah. And that's the important thing. We'll die. The film will be the same. Good. Yeah. It fast, it's something that I just, um, a colleague of mine, John Harkness at that Now Magazine, uh, used to say that his favorite movie is Rules of the Game. And every time he watches it, he sympathizes with a different character. He doesn't mean to. It's just that he's in a different place. The film hasn't moved, but he's coming to it from a new direction. Yeah, it's funny. You know, moments of this reminded me a lot of Ventura, just, you know, sort of trapped in a little world of their own, mm-hmm. uh, surrounded by the sea. Uh, and, but, but different. I mean, this had much more, you know, much less Antonioni's kind of uh, circularity and had much more of a linear thrust, very quiet, but real linear thrust yeah it's it's got that sting at the end too that that exquisite little moment of silent acknowledgement that everything that we've seen and all of these experiences have meant something it isn't just uh, an anecdote that they'll tell friends when they get drunk enough it's this most profound relationship that's not something Antonioni ever really did Mm -hmm. he sort of let that stuff float yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, it's almost impossible for me to, to quantify what Antonioni was doing, uh, but it, I know that it was endlessly provocative to me. Oh, yeah. You can lose yourself in those frames, too, just the same yeah, way. But um, He had an incredible eye. Yeah. But here, the sense of hostility, I think, that's the difference to me is that the, the, the trial of getting to the island, the actual effort it takes for them to do anything once they're there, the walks that are so stormy and windswept and, and still worth having, but you have to, you know, bundle up entirely and, and wear mesh on your entire body just to survive the spray and the sand, that, that sense that everything that happens there is more valuable because they've made it happen, that the, the canvases can be saved and that the uh, the painting can exist and then get off the island as well. It's it's all, you know, it's that castaway fantasy where wouldn't it be great if, but it's just a harsh, awful world that human contact makes bearable. Yeah, I'm, I'm very attracted to castaway fantasies. Very <laughs> attracted. Well, Wild Mountain Time is sort of an isolated little world in itself, isn't it? I mean, the, the island you create is is almost an island within the, I mean, obviously, literally, but but within the world of the film, it's a place that you have to travel to and travel from. And Well, I think every person is a castaway. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think when you, when you visit another human being, it's almost an interplanetary event. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've had many interactions in different environments as a result of just living my life. Uh, and some have been, uh, in Ireland with my family on the farm that my father was born on, and some have been in the Bronx with the Italian-American community. Uh, and each one of them is a separate door that I can go through and visit with at any time. Uh, in Ireland, in the country, in the farmland, the isolation of the farmers is deep and real. Uh, the loneliness of the farmers is something that journalists write about in Ireland. That they, you know, that it's the plight of the of many farmers that they, the ones that didn't marry, 
end up alone on farms uh, for the rest of their lives. There's a sort of window during which they get married. And if they miss that window, they never do. Uh, and uh, for, for reasons that are difficult to fully plumb. Uh, and the farm that's in my family, run by my cousin Anthony, uh, and uh, he never married. And it's a fascinating person who, to Americanize, you go, why, why didn't this person ever marry? Or the equivalent, why did this person end up alone on this farm uh, when they're so, you know, sociable and passionate uh, and particular? Uh, and it's, it's uh, something to do with the culture of Ireland and also the land of Ireland. There is a remoteness that is easily achieved in Ireland. You don't have to go that far to have gone very far. <laughs> My closest experience has been Wales, but yeah, I get that. I know what you mean. But the farms are different. The farms are different than the urban, like Dublin is a, a different world. Right. Uh, and uh, in the Irish culture, the uh, city people, like in Dublin, they don't. They want to deny the existence of the Irish farmers because they feel it's backward, uh, and they want to be thought of as a forward-moving people. And of course, people like me come in and go, but it's the most beautiful part of our, not just physically, but culturally. This is the richest and the deepest part of your land. But that's maybe the role of the outsider is to see what, what's obvious that might be because of short-term concerns, a blindness for people who live there. Yeah. I think that brings us back to Portrait of a Lady on Fire in a weird way. The thing, <laughs> the thing that Marianne does is see. Yes. And, and we get to see it with her. Yes. And also that the, that the filmmaker and the screenwriter were drawn to a fantasy of such isolation. Mm. Uh, you know, why, why, in other words, it's not just that you, got, you have a camera and they drop you by parachute into a location, you start shooting. You choose to go there. So something, I think, an idea of purity and experiment is what drew her uh, to tell a story in such a secluded environment because it's a crucible. It allows things to unfold at their own pace and in their own way. And it allows the unspoken to become potent. Whereas if there's a hurly-burly of people and events, that's less possible. Um, yeah, I do find it attractive. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, obviously, Wild Mountain Time originated as a stage play and, and would have been far more limited in its perspective. But the the pub scenes, are I kind of really responded to those, the sense of life happening all around that these characters are isolating themselves from by choice. Yeah, well, you know, I in the house that I grew up in on Saturday nights, you know, my father would take out the accordion, uh, which was decorated with rhinestones uh, depicting across American and Irish flags, uh, and with its mother of pearl buttons, 
and he would play Irish music and my aunts would get up and dance around the living room and everybody had to sing a song or tell a story or a joke. Uh, and it was talent night. And talent night, which I then, when I went off on my own in my 20s, uh, every year I would have, uh, have a party at, at, at Christmas and I would have a talent night. And if I had one, uh, I had parties sometimes at other times of the year and I would have a talent night at those too. And people knew it, people prepared to perform when they came. And that went on for, I did that as an adult for probably 10 years. Uh, and then that was no longer what was going on in my life. But in this film, I have a little talent show because I'm a big fan of amateurism, uh, much more than uh, uh, polished professionalism. Uh, it was interesting for me to have a performer like Emily Blunt, who actually is an incredibly accomplished singer, and have her sing as if she were a gifted amateur. Uh, and to do it singing to uh, Chris Walken's character, reminding him of his wife's favorite song, and by extension, his lost wife, uh, so that his conscience will be awakened to what she would have wanted him to do now. So that she's not simply singing a song, she's playing a scene, and the scene has a result, which is he changes as a result of her singing. Uh, and that's what allows, I think, you to have performance in a piece and have it truly be organic as opposed to something that stops the story. We've sort of talked about parallels, but um, obviously Portrait of a Lady on Fire is such a recent film. And the question I usually ask at the end of an episode is if there's anything in it that you yourself would want to borrow or reference or replicate or... or everything. Use. I'd like to <laughs> steal everything. <laughs> which is the highest compliment, you know, uh, from the actresses to the costume design to the cinematography to the use of organic music within the piece to the screenplay. It's, uh, it's a major piece of cinema and doesn't declare itself so. It allows you to find itself. So, uh, so uh, you know, I mean, you know, I'm killed to work with that camera woman. Oh my goodness, she's gifted, really gifted. Yeah, well, I've, um, her work on Atlantique is just, uh, it's, it's completely different, right? I mean, it's got, I don't know if you've seen that, but it's no. uh, its a Matty Jobs film. It's on Netflix. It's, um, yeah, it's a modern ghost story. It's very difficult to explain, but it's also a romance and it's also, I, I think you'd like it. And it looks nothing at all like Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's, it's remarkable just how different it is. Yeah, yeah. But one of the signs of a terrific camera person. My thanks to John Patrick Shanley, whose new film Wild Mountain Time is now available to watch on VOD from Elevation Pictures. Thanks also to Olivia Nasner. She knows what she did. You can find John on Twitter at John J.P. Shanley, all one word, and you can find Portrait of a Lady on Fire on Blu-ray and DVD in a genuinely gorgeous special edition from the Criterion Collection. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play, and streaming on Hulu in the U.S. and Crave in Canada. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days. Go check them out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast. S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. 
Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. One of them must be up this week. Until 2021, stay inside. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you have to go out. I'll see you in the new year.